welcome and thank you for joining the July Houseview monthly live stream. I'm Michelle Liberty, thematic investing strategist for the UBS Chief Investment Office, and I'll be hosting today's conversation. Last week marked the end of the first half of 2022, one of the worst first halves in over 50 years with very few places for investors to hide. Since last month's live stream, markets have remained volatile, with inflation still sitting above 8%. As the Fed continues to raise rates and fears of a recession continue to grow, we know this environment can feel overwhelming for many investors. With volatility likely to remain high in the coming months, our goal today is to share our latest views and guidance on what to do going forward. We've assembled an A-plus team here today for this discussion. I'm joined both in studio and virtually by Tom McLaughlin, Head of Fixed Income Americas, Jason Dreho, Head of Asset Allocation Americas, and Nadia Lovell, Senior U.S. Equity Strategist. Tom, Jason, Nadia, thank you so much for joining me today. One brief uh, housekeeping note before we get started. The Ask a Question button is open to engage with our analysts during today's discussion. We'll open the floor to the audience Q&A later in the live stream. So with that, uh, let's dive right in. And Jason, let's kick it off with you. Something that's top of mind for all of our investors, recessionary fears. The risk of a recession does appear to be rising. What is CAO's current thinking on the likelihood that a recession could start in the second half of the year? Thanks, Michelle. This is, I think, the question on the minds of most investors in the market today. Because uh, the risks have definitely been rising just over the past even like four to six weeks. Now, so our official thinking on a recession is that uh, between a recession, say a softish landing, uh, like avoiding a recession over the next six to 12 months, we think it's still a little more likely that we get the softish landing scenario than a recession, but it's close to a toss up. Now, a key factor in this outlook, it depends on what the Fed does. So at its June FOMC meeting, the Fed sort of projected how much they're likely to raise rates this year into next year. Uh, by the end of this year, they're saying they'll get the Fed funds rate to 3.4%, and probably by early next year, 3.8%. If the Fed goes that far, chances of recession next year you know, definitely rise. It probably becomes a likely scenario. So part of our assumption is the Fed isn't going to ultimately raise rates as much as they've projected. Uh, and they'll sort of pause or slow down later this year uh, because either inflation numbers are sort of falling to a level where they start to feel a little bit more comfortable, and also more likely is that you start to see some weakness in growth. And we're seeing sort of the recession concerns sort of like filtering in. Right now, the Fed can kind of look through that, but I think as the year goes on, it's going to be harder for them to do that. So I think that's, that's part of the, the, the factor. If we think then about the different components in the economy, where you're seeing the most weakness is sort of in the manufacturing side. There's definitely survey data sort of slowing manufacturing activity. Uh, consumers have held up reasonably well, but you're starting to see you know, consumer spending, especially the lower end of the consumer, you know, being impacted. But there's a key differentiation on the data between you know, like what people are actually spending and how they're spending their money. So good spending, people buying you know, autos, refrigerators, big things, that's definitely slowing much more. Spending on services, travel, leisure, if you tried to go to an airport recently over the July 4th weekend, you know how difficult it is to try to get a flight. That's holding up quite well. And that's the bigger part of the economy. So we could definitely see almost a recession in sort of the manufacturing part of the economy, but overall services spending could hold up to kind of offset it. Another key factor in this whole sort of story, this outlook really comes down to the labor market, which right now remains very strong. We got data yesterday that said there's still 11.3 million job openings. So it's almost two job openings per person looking for work. So this is a really tight labor market. Companies, maybe 
you're hearing anecdotes of layoffs, but you're hearing still far more evidence of companies struggling to find workers, and they might be reluctant to let people go. If that's the case, then that also sort of pushes off the potential for recession. The last point I'll emphasize is um, you know, we'll get in about three or four weeks, second quarter GDP growth, it could end up coming in negative. The first quarter GDP growth was minus 1.5, 1.6%. So if that happens, negative second quarter GDP growth, you'll hear stories of this is a technical recession. It's going to be on the front page of the news. That could happen, but it's a very strange situation because job growth in the first half of this year could over, be over 2.5 million people cumulative, which is around 400,000 plus per month. Historically, that's a booming economy, and that's not recessionary. So there's a lot of kind of quirks, you know, sort of strange data that's going on. So definitely evidence of slowing, but not necessarily recession, certainly not yet. Got it. Thank you, Jason. That's really helpful context. Nadia, I'm going to turn it to you now. Jason's outlined a very uncertain environment for investors. So against this backdrop, what is your team's outlook for equities moving forward? And where do you see the best opportunities across sectors, styles, or themes? Yes, thanks, Michelle. You know, as you heard Jason say, recession is an our base case. But that said, of course, we can all admit that the macro backdrop has further deteriorated over the last month or so, and the risk of recession is clearly rising. There's a lot of uncertainty right now in the marketplace that the market is grappling with. And as we know, equities don't like uncertainty. And so that creates a more challenging environment for equities. So we aren't looking for much upside to the market in the near term. You know, our year-end price target right now for the S&P 500 is 3,900. That's roughly in line with where we're trading at the current levels. We think that the market will oscillate in this lower band and remain sensitive to the inflation and growth data. Now, if you were to extend your time horizon, call it to June 2023, the setup is a bit more attractive, um, particularly if the Fed is indeed able to engineer a soft landing, which is our base case. Um, in that sort of scenario, we're looking for 8% upside to the market from current levels. Now, from a positioning standpoint, uh, we continue to favor value. We continue to favor quality. And from a sector standpoint, um, energy and healthcare. Now, when we talk about quality, we are really referring to those companies that have strong balance sheets and return on invested capital real earnings and stable operating margins, as well as healthy free cash flow yields. Now, historically, these types of companies are the ones that tend to outperform in a slowing economic environment, which is what we find ourselves in right now. Um, on the sector standpoint, I mentioned energy. We continue to like it there uh, here. So let me just address um, the sector, just given the recent weakness, um, Michelle. Uh, yeah, energy is now in bear market territory, but it's still up nearly 30% year to date. And it is the only S&P sector that is in positive territory. Now, we have seen the sector pull back as Brent oil has slid to under $100 recently on recession fares, um, concerns about new lockdowns in China, and as well as some technical factors. But we continue to think that this sell-off is overdone and there's an opportunity here to really add to the sector as well as you know longer dated oil contracts um, i would say that we continue to believe that the oil market is very tight and demand is holding firm you know we have the travel season in the northern hemisphere is underway and then on the supply side you know capacity remains quite limited and there's risk of further disruption we all know that we have uh, an ongoing war in Ukraine, and so that's also disrupted um, uh, energy supply. 
We also have had protests in Libya, in Ecuador. We have had strikes in Norway. We also have the um, hurricane season that is underway. So we really think that the risk is skewed to the upside and think that Brent can get to $130 by September and hold firm there at $125 into the first half of next year. And so that should be supportive to um, energy equities. Now, of course, if we hit a recession, Michelle, you know, energy and oil won't be immune. Uh, we could see oil trade in the 80 to $90 range. But today, the energy equity is pricing in an oil price in the 65 to $70 range. And so uh, just to put things into uh, a little bit more perspective, we are already seeing an early glimpse of what we can expect from the energy companies in the upcoming earnings season, Michelle. You know, we saw um, in recent days ExxonMobil issue and, and 8K um, given uh, guidance to record earnings and cash flow. The point is the earnings growth momentum is still with this sector, unlike the broader market and exceptionally strong free cash flow generation with, you know, you have free cash flow yields above 14%. You have solid returns to shareholders. I mean, for some companies, with variable dividend component, we're talking about dividend yields that are in the mid to high single digit. So, Michelle, the broader market will remain volatile, we think, and sort of be in this range, but we still think that there are relative pockets of opportunities that are to be had in this market. Great. Thank you, Nadia. And you did mention earnings season, so let's just build on that for a minute. And attention has shifted to 2Q earnings season, which kicks off next week. And this is going to be critical as the market search for good news. So what are your expectations and what will your team be keeping an eye on to gauge the health of the equity market? Yes, Michelle, you're absolutely right. This upcoming earnings season is uh, particularly important in our view. You know, of course, there have been growing concerns in the marketplace that the consensus bottom of estimates, uh, particularly for 2023, are just too high. You know, we've had several quarters now where earnings have surprised to the upside. Forward guidance have been somewhat okay. Um, we've seen full-year estimates at the aggregate S&P level uh, move higher. But this could be the earnings season where that changes, particularly given that we have clearly seen uh, a deterioration in the macro backdrop in the last few weeks. You know, I, I will note, though, that much of the earnings upward revisions that we've seen at the index level has been driven by energy and materials, um, just given the sizable year-to-date move in commodity prices. And that's been offset in the earnings downgrade that we've seen on um, consumer discretionary as well as uh, communication services. But for the second quarter at the index level, consensus is looking for earnings growth about 5%. Um, if you were to exclude energy, the pendulum will actually swing the other way. We would be looking for expected negative EPS growth, just to give you some perspective on the large impact that you know energy is having at the index level earnings. But we are less focused, Michelle, on whether or not companies beat estimates this quarter. Um, when you think about things historically, typically companies beat by a few percentage points. What we're more interested to hear about is the outlook, because that's what's going to be important in helping to really determine the direction of the market in coming months. You know, for guidance and overall demand outlook. Demand has been okay, though that there's been some signs of cracks, um, particularly on the consumer good size. So we want to know more about that and how things are faring in other areas. Margins, um, they have been resilient as companies has been able to pass along those increased costs, you know, in this high inflation environment. Um, 
they have been hovering, you know, near record levels. And consensus is actually calling for further margin expansion into 2023, which makes us scratch our head a little bit. Um, but it's becoming more difficult to pass along those additional price increases. So we'll be watching margins very closely. And then inventory levels are starting to rise in some areas. You know, we've seen some of the consumer discretionary companies, um, they've already sounded alarms on some of this. You know, inventory recovery is good in some areas that has been experiencing some shortages, particularly in, in your industrial chips of component side. But excess inventory at a time where you're seeing some softness in con consumer demand isn't good for margins, as we know. And then supply chain disruptions, of course, um, that's hampered um, several companies, uh, many companies in the in the first quarter. Um, so we want to hear some update on that. And we're starting to see some relief on the supply chain size. I, anecdotally, we're, we're seeing some data on that, but we want to hear more from companies. And then lastly, um, labor and uh, workforce plan. You know, in recent week, you heard Jason allude to this a little bit. You will see the pickup in jobless claim, though jobless claim does remain relatively low. We've seen some announcements of layoffs and some hiring slowdowns and freezes. So we want any sort of update on um, companies' workforce plan because that also will help us give a better picture of the outlook for the economy and uh, as well as the Fed. And then Michelle, just pulling it all, pulling away a bit from the quarter, right? You know, our earnings expectation for this year, uh, we're looking for about 8% EPS growth. That's slightly below where the consensus is. But I think the important thing is the 2023 number. We are looking for 3.5% EPS growth. That's well below where consensus is at 9%. So over the course of the next few quarters, we really expect to see that bottom-up earnings estimates to meaningfully come down. And we think that that's going to keep a cap on this market, Michelle. Thanks so much, Nadia. So now that we've had the equities view, Tom, I want to bring you in now and shift to fixed income. How has the shift in market expectations regarding inflation versus recession affected the performance of fixed income securities? And what's our outlook for rates through the end of the year? Well, Michelle, I think to answer the question, uh, we probably have to start with a brief bit of history. Uh, as you'll recall, the Federal Reserve belatedly acknowledged that inflation was likely to become more persistent than they originally anticipated back in December. They made that change in view but I think by that time, the investor confidence regarding the central bank's willingness uh, and ability uh, to control inflation had taken a hit. Uh, that was aggravated by the fact that the Fed was still easing as late as the first week of March, uh, which in retrospect was somewhat mystifying. Uh, I think the lag in the response function of the Fed combined with an abruptly abrupt shift in hawkish tone uh, ended up driving the 10-year up by two points in the space of six months. And that kind of volatility is unusual. It tends to uh, have some knock-on effects, like reducing market liquidity because dealers are disinclined to hold large balances and carry inventory. What's interesting, I think, is the rather abrupt shift in the sentiment in the past four weeks, uh, as both Nadia and Jason alluded to, um, from widespread concerns over persistent inflation to a broader concern about the health of the U.S. economy. Uh, there seems at this point to be a growing consensus that the probability of a recession is rising. Uh, as both Jason and Nadia indicated, it's not necessarily a base case yet, but, the, but it's certainly the probability is certainly rising. And I think the Fed is aiming for a soft landing, as Jason indicated, but I think market professionals also 
are parsing every single word that Jay Powell says. Uh, and his emphasis in recent weeks has been on price stability. Uh, it's hard to miss. That kind of commentary on inflation being a hidden tax on like the least affluent parts of society, which of course is true, is also a means of messaging that the Fed understands that they're playing catch up. Uh, and a highly restrictive monetary policy, 75 basis points last month, another 75 expected later this month, is uh, being interpreted as a risk to the U.S. economy by potentially restricting capital formation. So the 10-year, uh, which reached almost 3.5% and rapidly fell below uh, the 3% mark before rebounding this morning to 3, that's all about expectations and, and investor sentiment. The Fed's own expectation of the terminal Fed funds rate, as Jason indicated, is three and three quarters, 3.8%. But the market is already discounting that to three and a quarter. So that suggests that traders in the market believe that the Fed is going to be obliged to shift gears again uh, and begin to ease as the economy begins to slow at the end of this year and into next year. So we're looking for a 10-year note to exhibit some volatility. That's, that's going to be inescapable here for the next few months. But to settle into some sort of a trading range, um, at 275 to three and a quarter. Now, could it go above three and a quarter for a short period of time? Absolutely. But given the shift in sentiment, again, I'm inclined to believe it would be a temporary phenomenon. As far as asset classes go, spreads on corporate debt have widened as the risk of recession arising. High yield has taken it on the chin. Spreads are approaching historic levels at this point. Um, but it's still too, say, too early, I think, to say that it's peaked. The investment-grade corporate market is a bit more interesting. Spreads have also widened there, and it's beginning to look more attractive and certainly worth monitoring more closely. Um, the market is certainly showing signs of preferring higher-quality paper until we have a better handle on whether the economy is going to slow uh, a bit. Uh, Leslie Falcone, our colleague, is going to publish her next edition of the Fixed Income Strategist this afternoon, and I'd recommend that uh, as good reading in terms of some of our asset class preferences. Great. Thank you, Tom. So let's just stick with fixed income for now. And rate volatility this year has spilled over to muni bonds, uh, which are an important component of many client portfolios. How have they performed relative to other fixed income securities? And do they represent a reasonable value play in the current market environment? Yeah, so you're right. Municipals tend to be a foundation of uh, many, probably I go as far as to say most private client portfolios. Uh, the first half of 22 was tough on municipal bond investors. Not a surprise there because it was tough on most of the fixed income asset classes. Uh, Year-to-date total returns are down 9%, a little more than 9%. I think the key driver of negative performance is similar to what you saw in the taxable market, uh, a more restrictive monetary policy driving yields higher. I think municipals got caught in the undertow to some degree, but it's worth noting that uh, municipals have held up better than the corporate bond market, which is off by about 14%. Um, I think steady outflows from mutual funds uh, is a big part of this. They tend to be, that is, the mutual funds tend to be the, the marginal buyer in the municipal market that dictates price. And as fund balances are reduced because people are requiring uh, the, uh, the fund managers to uh, liquidate uh, holdings in order to basically return cash, I think at that point they become four sellers and it basically feeds on itself. Now, fortunately, the good news here, there's a silver lining is that the outlook for the second half is brighter. Over the past 30, 35 years, we've only seen seven years out of 33, I believe it was, uh, where the July performance has been negative. And I think that is really a technical issue. You're seeing uh, a mismatch, and this happens almost every year, between supply and demand. And the supply uh, is down because we're seeing less new, net new issuance. 
uh, and you're seeing more demand because you're, you're seeing more redemptions and more maturities, which is very common in July. So we're hopeful that at this point, we've seen the worst of it in this one market and it's gonna get a little bit better. Uh, as treasuries find a more stable trading range, it's also likely to see more interest in tax-exempt securities. And the final point I make is that uh, in terms of tax exemption right now, at the 10-year spot, tax-exempt bonds are trading at about 93% of comparable treasuries. At the 30-year spot, longer duration, they're trading at 101% of treasuries. Effectively, what that means is that you're getting the tax exemption very cheap at 10 years, and it's free at 30 years. So from the perspective of where fixed income is performing very well, I think municipals actually is, is an asset class to look at very closely. Great, thank you, Tom. And Jason, back to you. Uh, one final question before we get to the Q&A. We recently published our second half outlook titled Stagflation, Reflation, Soft Landing, or Slump. With multiple possible scenarios, what should investors be doing in their portfolios? So I think as we've heard it kind of covered during the call that there's clearly a lot of possibilities, a lot of uncertainty. So I think, you know, big picture, uh, you know, this is not a market to position for any one scenario. I think people are believing that a recession is likely and wouldn't want to position for that. I think that's, you know, a little bit too premature to get sort of overly defensive in that regard. It's also an important consideration of not only what you think in terms of the likely outcome of recession, soft landing or something else, but what is also the market pricing. And what we're seeing right now in, in recent activity in the markets is a lot of uncertainty among investors themselves. Sentiment is very bearish. A lot of people think there'll be a recession, but if you think about the comments that Tom just made regarding sort of the fixed income outlook and for the 10-year treasury, in a sort of soft landing scenario, if things work out okay, more probably at the higher end of the range you talked about in terms of like the 10-year between two and a quarter, 2.75 and three and a quarter, it could go even higher. But if we get a recession, it goes to, you know, to 2%, something, let's say, in that range. So pretty big swings of possibilities. And so you want to be kind of prepared for, for all these different things. So that's kind of overarching kind of theme. Uh, so with that, also don't want to make strong directional bets. You don't want to necessarily be de-risking your equity portfolio significantly at this point in time uh, or taking a lot of risk one way or another. Uh, I think if we think about asset allocation broadly, there's a couple of key themes that we have in mind. Uh, one is sort of up in quality. And, you know, with an equity, sort of looking for, you know, kind of quality equities, things that, you know, could be a little more resilient in times of economic uncertainty. But even within fixed income, still remaining towards a bias, towards kind of, you know, higher quality assets. Yields in different parts have become more attractive, but there's still a lot of risks out, out there. So you don't want to get sort of, you know, sort of too adventurous. So then kind of up in quality, you know, lean a little more towards defensive, but not necessarily outright defensive. So between defensive and cyclical is kind of, you know, a little bit to bias in, in that direction. Uh, we still think in an environment of a softish landing with elevated inflation, the value stocks can, can perform well. Uh, commodities recently have, have certainly become under some weakness, but we still think that's an asset class for, for fundamental reasons of supply and demand, suggests there's more upside. It also hedges you against geopolitical uncertainty, stagflation risks. So those are some of the kind of themes that, that we recommend. But overarching, you know, don't get overly adventurous or, or, or too defensive at this point in time. Got it. Thank you again. And Tom, Jason, Nadia, thank you for providing these insights. We will now open the floor to the audience Q&A. And as a reminder, you can submit a question by clicking the Ask a Question button on the web page. Um, but the first one here, Jason, I think this is for you. Uh, commodities are down about 15% in the past few weeks, including large declines on Tuesday of this week. What explains this pullback and do you still see value in commodities and related assets? 
Yeah, so for a year when equities are down a lot, bonds are down, commodities were the star performer. They're still up quite a bit for the year. But in the past three weeks, as you mentioned, they're down at some point almost 20%. They've rallied just the past couple of days. I'd point to three kind of factors explaining why commodities have pulled back. One is this kind of ties into these growth concerns and recession concerns, because the thought is, well, if you do get a U.S. or global recession, the demand for commodities will decline, and the prices are pretty sensitive to even small shifts in demand because supply is sort of almost fixed. There's not a lot of you know, scope for, for increasing supply. So if demand declines because of recession, then prices should come down. So you're seeing, I think, that's the number one driver. Uh, this week, especially on Tuesday, you saw a big pullback in, in oil, for example, down 8 9%. That was tied to concerns about China. We know China's had this zero COVID policy of strict lockdowns anytime COVID cases rise. Recently, it's been sort of reopening, but on the weekend and Monday, there's reports of elevated or rising COVID cases around Shanghai. This renews the fears that China's going to reimpose these lockdowns. And some of the positive momentum we've seen of China kind of reopening, that kind of grinds to halt. That's critical because if the demand for commodities in the U.S. and Europe and developed world declines because of slowing growth, the thought is, well, China's going to offset that as they kind of reaccelerate. If that's not the case, that's provided some, some downside. So there was a little bit of, I think, kind of headwind there. The third factor, and this applies really kind of across different markets, is liquidity is, is poor. You're not seeing a lot of investors want to come in and buy almost any asset class because they're just sort of uncertain where things could evolve from here. So when you see moves of 7 or 8% in one day, when there's not a lot of real fundamental news, that to me suggests... There's an investor, maybe a big investor, who's liquidating positions. Other investors don't want to come in. And the fact that just in the past few days we've seen commodities bounce back three or four or five percent also is kind of consistent with like almost like technicals and liquidity driving it. Fundamentally, we still think commodities are attractive because demand is holding up. You know, even for for oil and for gas in the U.S., uh, whereas the supply is really constrained. You know, spare capacity in energy production, oil production is limited, inventories are low. It won't take much increase in demand for prices to kind of go back up to the levels they were before. So we still like them, especially from a portfolio diversification perspective. Great. Thank you. That's helpful. And Tom, I'm going to give this next question to you. Uh, President Biden is expected to speak with President Xi later this month. And in the run-up to that conversation, there has been more talk that some of the tariffs on Chinese goods will be lifted while new investigations may be initiated. So why has the Biden administration acted now? And is it likely to have an impact on the rate of inflation? Uh, the short answer is no, it's not likely to have a big impact on inflation. The longer answer is the worst kept secret in Washington for the last two months is that uh, President Biden has been subjected to conflicting advice from members of his administration as to what to do with tariffs. So Secretary Yellen uh, has made the case that a tariff relief uh, will provide some benefit to inflation. And I think if you took off all of the tariffs that were originally imposed by the Trump administration, uh, the estimates are that you could basically reduce the rate of inflation by maybe a quarter of a point. Um, but that's presuming you basically took them all off and did it abruptly. And that kind of benefit for inflation would also have to take some time to, to lock in. Um, what they're contemplating now is taking, having very selective uh, suspensions of some tariffs on consumer goods. Uh, it's probably driven by the whole electric election cycle we're in right now. But it constitutes less than 10% of the overall uh, tariffs that are in place today. Uh, so effectively, the impact on inflation is kind of not going to be particularly meaningful. Um, the partial rollbacks we're talking about here, just to give a sense of the scale, is is 10 billion out of about 375 billion. So it's it's a very limited impact. There may be more of a messaging component here in terms of trying uh, having the Oval Office try to do something about what is front of mind 
for a lot of voters before the election, which of course is inflation. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, who is always more skeptical about tariff relief, uh, is likely to initiate new, what we call 301 investigations. That's an investigation over unfair trade practices by China. And that's probably going to be announced uh, simultaneously with this temporary suspension of a very, very small number of tariffs on consumer goods. So it's, it's kind of a mixed message. We're likely to be hearing from the Biden administration this week. Uh, and there's also a component, as you indicated in the question, there's probably a component of this that suggests in addition to messaging in front of the election, we're probably also, uh, it's a bit, a bit of a messaging towards uh, towards China in anticipation of that conversation that both Biden and President Xi are supposed to have. Great. Thank you, Tom. And Nadia, we did have one question come in for you. Uh, if earnings estimates are revised lower, how low do you think the S&P could go on a price to earnings basis or if they overshoot uh, how far? And what does that translate to for the S&P 500 index? Yes, Michelle, thank you for that question. Uh, you know, our, we have seen valuation derate in quite a bit due to real yields moving higher uh, year to date. We've seen the valuation multiple now the PE at about 16 times. That's roughly in line with the historical average. Now, I think the market is already sniffing out that the earnings expectations are too high. Uh, particularly on the buy side, expectations are much lower than the consensus um, sell side expectations. There's always a lag um, in terms of um, our earnings revisions. And so could we see, if we see the earnings come down further, could we see a further pullback in valuation multiple? That is quite possible. Um, in a sort of a recessionary scenario, could you see the multiple go down to the low teens? Um, we've seen that in past recessions, so that's 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 a, a probable uh, scenario. In our re recession scenario, we're looking for the S&P to pull back to about 3,300. I think outside of a recession, you probably could see the um, the uh, S&P comes come come to to retest those lows that we've seen recently and probably come down to a 3,600 sort of level, assuming that we don't have a recession. But I think a lot of this is starting to already get priced in the market. It is unusual to see a market assigns trough multiple to trough earnings. And so even if we enter a recession, we wouldn't expect the um, the market to, to put a trough multiple on that earnings. I think that will happen ahead of time. So we could see a, a, a P multiple that comes in to about 15 times um, uh, and, and sort of trough out, trough out there between 14 to 15 times. Great. Thank you. And Unfortunately, we are out of time for today, but I want to thank our audience for all of the great questions. And in addition, I want to thank each of you for spending time with us today. I hope you found the conversation to be insightful and that we were able to provide some clarity during this challenging market environment. We will reconvene next month on Thursday, August 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, we will continue to keep you updated with our latest views through our HouseView publications, CIO alerts, and more. As always, we encourage you to continue the conversation with your UBS financial advisor. Thank you again, and we hope you have some time to enjoy the summer weather. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only.
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.